You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Jawbreaker, Kruger, Loining, MD, Charles, Logan, The Knight of Dampier, Pablo, Toves, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Legends, Kinway, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. The Glorious Revolution of 1688, called the Bloodless Revolution, doesn't get a lot of attention when talking about global political revolutions. Largely because it was bloodless, compared to the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution or even the American Revolution. It feels kind of meh. It's what, a peaceful transfer of power? Well, yeah, but I would argue it's far more significant than we usually assume. The transfer of power that really mattered here was not the transfer from James II to William III. That's just another king changing places. I would argue that the Glorious Revolution was not the invasion of William III, but a a quieter political revolution. The English Parliament was not exactly keen to hand power over to a Dutch king. In the horse trading that followed the invasion, the Parliament passed a ton of provisions which put strict limits on royal power and further strengthened the position of the Parliament. Which, yeah, I mean, that's not sexy, it's not exciting. We're talking about, what here, legislation? But it is super significant to the development of modern representative democracy. Thanks to the centuries of English tradition, I mean, we could trace this back to the Magna Carta or even before, the English were primed to forge their government into what we would recognize as something akin to a constitutional monarchy. And for that development, we could in part thank the new king, William III. He didn't care about English politics. You want to what, draft a Bill of Rights that protects Protestants? Yeah, sure, great. I can still raise an army of Englishmen to fight France, right? Then do whatever you want. The invasion, in the eyes of William, was a consideration in the coming war with King Louis XIV. That attitude, I think, saved the English people a ton of suffering down the line when the rest of Europe was busy overthrowing kings and fighting wars to have their own bills of rights and constitutions. Now, we've talked about this revolution already. We're not going to go into the details of William's invasion. But the significance of this march towards modernity for us here on this show is the shift away from royal majesty and toward politics and politicians. 
moving forward, we're going to have to be as concerned with prime ministers as we have been with kings and queens. Now, I'm not just going to throw a whole bunch of names at you at once. There are a lot of them. It would be overwhelming and not terribly interesting. Instead, I'm going to introduce the political players who will be relevant as they become so. However, there are two that will become the key figures in the English story moving forward. This is episode 165, Sarah and John. The office of Prime Minister didn't exist yet in England. It wouldn't exist until the kingdoms were united, but there was always someone who filled that role as the top political officer in England. Sometimes they would even be called the Chief Minister. Their official role was usually the Lord High Treasurer, but sometimes they were the Secretary of State or Lord High Admiral. Regardless, more and more they were taking up the role of what we would recognize as a Prime Minister. And since we're discussing Prime Ministers, it seems apt to begin with none other than Winston Churchill. But not that Winston Churchill. We're talking about Sir Winston Churchill, a distant ancestor of the famous 20th century prime minister. That Churchill was known as the Cavalier Colonel. As the name implies, during the Civil War, the Cavalier Colonel fought for the Royalist cause. When the Cavaliers lost and Cromwell took power, the Churchill family took significant hits to their fortune and their property. They were almost, but not quite, destitute. You know, they weren't broke how regular people go broke. They were broke how the nobility goes broke. And this was happening to a ton of royalist families all around the realm. Winston played a role in facilitating the Stuart Restoration, which restored his family to favor, but not to prosperity. Restoring that fortune fell upon the shoulders of Winston's son, John Churchill. John was only ten years old when the Stuarts returned to England. And when he reached manhood, he appeared to follow in his father's footsteps as a, a cavalier deep in the royalist camp. By 24, John Churchill was serving as second-in-command to King Charles' illegitimate son James, Duke of Monmouth. Monmouth and Churchill led a fierce cavalry regiment during the Third Anglo-Dutch War. And you can picture that kind of cabal of young and handsome, arrogant cavaliers fighting duels and romancing the ladies. Much of what you picture there is accurate, but I don't want you to write them off as a bunch of rich kids. They weren't all that rich, honestly. Their social standing wasn't exactly elite, either. They were all rogues from royalist families who suffered the same financial hardships as the Churchills, and they were led by a bastard. A royal bastard is nothing to scoff at. They often led military detachments, but they rarely led the most august units. That holds true here. These cavaliers gained a reputation as wild and ornery and rambunctious, dashing heroes. This put them in an interesting position, though, as outsiders to the regular army. When England concluded their arm of the war in 1674, Monmouth and Churchill volunteered their regiment to fight for King Louis. Remember, they ended that arm of the war largely due to the pressure concerning the alliance between the Bourbons and the Stuarts. It was a bit controversial, 
when they sailed back to France. These royalist rogues, though, encouraged by the family to do so, the royal family, served France with distinction and earned a lot of honor for England. They served under, and this is really important even if it doesn't seem so quite yet, they served under the tutelage of the Vicomte de Turenne, Marshal General of France. We all remember Turin, right? He was that military genius of King Louis's early reign. He was the commander who won the Fronde for the king and allowed him to keep his throne. Often, Turin is considered France's greatest military commander between maybe the Hundred Years' War and the Corsican Corporal. Now, this was to be Turin's last campaign, but it's often considered his greatest military achievement. And when I say that Monmouth and Churchill served under Turin, I don't mean that they just took orders from his aide-de-camp. They did, but they were both there when those orders were decided upon. As top-ranking officers of an elite English regiment, one of them a royal bastard nonetheless, they sat in on all of Turin's councils and conferred with his top leaders. This was an internship with the greatest commander of the age. The young captains learned all about Turin's tactics, about his leadership style, and his military organization. They would blend these lessons later in life with their own cavalier style, a style that was often considered by the august old guard military veterans as reckless. They combined them to create something new and different. I want you to remember this tutelage under Turin when Churchill goes on to rebuild the English army into something that we would recognize as the 18th century British Empire army, maybe the most elite force in the world at the time. And it's here that we should introduce the other major player in this story. Now, this player was not a politician in any traditional sense. It would have been illegal, but she was a major force in English politics in the years to come. Her name was Sarah Jennings. She came from a prominent, if not a powerful, family. Her uncle served as physician to Charles I and his wife, Anne. That means that he oversaw the birth of both Charles II and James II. The Jennings family, thanks to that relationship, was favored by the Stuarts. Sarah Jennings served as a maid of honor to James' first wife, also named Anne. A maid of honor was like a lady-in-waiting, but usually younger and usually of a lower social standing. Sarah was only eleven when she became a maid of honor, and it proved to be a lonely life for her first year. But then another girl who had been away returned to the court of the Stuarts, James' daughter, Anne. The two of them became fast friends. They were almost the same age, and before long they were nearly inseparable confidants. There are some who would suggest that their friendship would evolve later on into a romantic relationship, and usually when there are two people of the same sex in history that are very close inseparable friends, I mean, Sappho and her friend, right? But that doesn't appear to be the case here. 
We can say so thanks to the mountain of correspondence between the two, from which there's not a, a glimmer of anything like that. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now, I mention this friendship only in passing to give a bit of historical flavor. In truth, it's just a blip on the radar. Nothing that's going to have any sort of impact down the line. I don't want you to be focusing on Anne. It's not like she's going to have the most famous pirate ship of all time named after her or anything. And it's not like the reason that that ship was named what it was named had any kind of direct correlation to Anne's very close friend Sarah Jennings. That wouldn't be why I'm talking about this in the first place. See, Sarah Jennings was a devout Protestant. This should not have been noteworthy in England at the time, but when she arrived at court she discovered that her Protestantism was very much out of the ordinary. Her older sister, Sarah's older sister, also served as a maid of honor and was born into the Jennings family as an Anglican. But she married a Catholic. This caused a bit of ruckus, a minor scandal. Some suggested that the Stuarts at court were pressuring girls into marriage with Catholics. The insinuation is that they intended to breed the Anglicanism out of the elite classes. It's dangerous to make assumptions about anyone's religious faith or their reasons for choosing it, but we can say that Sarah made a choice to stubbornly stick to her Protestant faith. And we should note that her best friend, Anne, daughter of a Catholic future king, although also daughter of a Protestant Englishwoman, that she chose to be a Protestant. I'm not saying that her friendship with Sarah is the reason she was a Protestant, but I'm sure when the pressure was on her to convert, as it certainly was at points in her life, her friendship with someone who held the same beliefs would have bolstered her. In 1671, James' wife, Anne's mother, died. The maids of honor and the ladies-in-waiting who served the queen might have been sent home, and some of them were, but Sarah stayed at court. I mean, what would you do in James' position? Your daughter had just lost her mother. Were you going to send her best friend in the whole wide world away? Of course not, you're not a monster. But Sarah was reinstated as a maid of honor when James remarried. That's when he remarried the Italian Catholic Mary of Modena. 
This was yet another Catholic at court, and in the eyes of Anne, likely an evil stepmother of sorts. It only deepened the bond between Sarah and Anne. This friendship, which I've spent a decent amount of time setting up, well, those of you who know the name of Sarah Jennings, those of you who have been reading ahead, know that this may be the most important relationship in this story. But maybe not. When Sarah was 15 years old, a young, dashing, handsome Protestant cavalier arrived at court from his time overseas. Sarah was maybe surprised and probably pleased to see how warmly he was greeted by the royal family. John Churchill, 25 years old, was accomplished and very charming. Now, we know that this was when John and Sarah met for the first time, but we don't know any of the details about how or when they fell in love. We can be pretty certain that Anne knew everything, but this story is a love story, which is kind of odd for the time. There's no backbiting or political intrigue between the two, and certainly no poison. It did, though, start off a bit rocky, as the best love stories often do. See, John Churchill could have done better, socially and financially speaking. And he was pressured to do so in order to save his family's fortune. See, Sarah's family, who were royalist sympathizers, suffered the same misfortunes under Cromwell, for the same reasons as the Churchill family. John was intended to marry another woman with huge tracts of land. He suggested to Sarah at one point that maybe she could be his mistress. Like an official mistress. It's totally legit, I swear. When I was in France, and you know he never shut up about his year abroad, when I was in France, everyone had a mistress. It was the thing to do. But Sarah, who throughout her life would prove to be self-assured and very forthright for her time, she put her foot down and demanded that he put a ring on it. John Churchill, to his credit, did so. Now, if you don't know this story, you're probably wondering why I'm spending so much time on these two courtiers. And I don't want to give too much away here, but in a few short years, Sarah Churchill will be what we would see as England's first lady, maybe their first first lady. They are key figures in that shift away from royal majesty and toward political power. We don't know when the two got married. The ceremony was held in secret, but not secret from the royal family. They knew all about it, and they approved. It was done in secret so that Sarah could remain at court and serve as a maid of honor. She would have probably moved in with her husband, but her husband was about to be sent overseas once again. When England re-entered the Franco-Dutch War in 1678, this time on the side of the Netherlands, John Churchill sailed for Amsterdam to organize an expeditionary force. They were intended to ride for William III, the Prince of Orange. This was probably when John Churchill met the Stadtholder, and I wonder if there was a point of contention that the Cavalier had fought earlier in the war under Turin. Probably not, though. Everyone, even the Dutch, admired and respected the Marshal General. It 
would have been seen as an honor to have served under him. It was likely his first time meeting Mary, William's wife. However, Churchill was a mainstay at the royal court at this point. His personal news of the royal family and his news of Anne, Mary's younger sister, would have ingratiated him. That expeditionary force never amounted to much. The war ended shortly thereafter largely because England agreed to fight on the side of the Dutch. But this meeting here is significant, for obvious reasons. Later that year, 1678, John Churchill was elected to the Parliament. This was during the heart of the exclusion crisis in which the Parliament attempted to exclude James from the throne for being a Catholic. Sir John, who was a friend to the Stuarts, served as their parliamentary liaison. His wife began to show signs of pregnancy, and their marriage was announced to the public. In the years that followed, John navigated the exclusion crisis, and the Churchills had a whole pack of kids. Sarah and Anne kept up their friendship, and the Churchills rebuilt their fortune. They were prosperous years, financially and personally. For the couple. But then in 1685, King Charles died and James became king. He disbanded the parliament. That means he no longer required a liaison to the parliament, but John and Sarah continued to be regulars. Then crisis hit England. In what was a really fascinating turn of events, the illegitimate Protestant son of Charles II the Duke of Monmouth, made his claim on the crown and went into open rebellion. Monmouth was, of course, Churchill's old friend and one-time commander in that cavalry regiment. King James, in what was a bold and even inspired move, appointed Sir John to a leadership position in the force that was sent against Monmouth, maybe as a bit of a test to his loyalty. Churchill wasn't an overall command of the force, but he was basically number two. Remember that Churchill had been at all of those councils under Turin. He had helped develop the tactical style that defined their regiment. He did so alongside the Duke of Monmouth, and he personally knew most of the men that led forces under the Duke. He'd once commanded many of them. He knew better than any other commander in England how to counter Monmouth's rebellion. In the end, though the commander still won all the honors, John Churchill was credited with winning the campaign by that commander. There's a possibility that, had King James not tapped Churchill for that leadership role, things could have ended very differently in English history. We could have had a King James III right here in the person of the Duke of Monmouth. In the aftermath of the rebellion, John Churchill, whose loyalty had been proven, found himself to be a favorite of the king's. He was nowhere near what we would consider a de facto prime minister, but he was the guy that the king turned to for a ton of political matters. He was in the inner circle. And that makes his decision in 1688 really fascinating. John Churchill turned on the king and began plotting to overthrow James Stuart. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in the political maneuvers that Churchill displayed here, but they're impressive. He managed to remain, in the eyes of the king, a loyal kingsman. He was in the favor of James II throughout all of this. 
Simultaneously, he was establishing his Protestant parliamentarian credentials to his fellows, and, known to but a very few, he was actively plotting to overthrow the king. If you'd like to read more about it and this whole era, I would recommend the books Rebellion and Revolution by Peter Ackroyd. They're digestible histories about this entire era, covering roughly the time from 1630 to 1776. And he's got a whole series, if you like them, that goes back to the Tudors and before. Ackroyd writes of John Churchill, and he calls him Marlborough here, but John Churchill is not yet the Duke of Marlborough in our story. He says, quote, Marlborough had all the makings of a modern patriot. He was handsome, clever, and resourceful, an excellent general, and a politician of persuasive manner. He had distinguished himself in the service of the Duke of York, and had never been out of favor. He was inclined to support whatever or whoever indulged his interests, whether for power, money, or further honors, while all the time remaining tactful, modest, and obliging. End quote. Whoever or whatever indulged his interests. Which raises the question, what were those interests exactly? Why was there this sea change in John Churchill? Why did he turn his coat against the king? Which could be expanded, John Churchill was not alone. A number of men in the king's inner council turned their coats as well at almost the exact same time, including the king's own chief minister. Well, in Churchill's case, I think the first thing to note is that he was a singularly skilled political player. He could read the writing on the wall, he could see the way the wind was blowing concerning the king, and he chose to throw his lot in with the winning side. His family had lost everything fighting for a doomed Stuart in the last revolution. Perhaps Churchill thought he could direct events if he took a leading role in the plot. That is what happened, at any rate. Then there was the religious question. Churchill was loyal to King James, but he was a Protestant. James appeared to be plotting to disband the Anglican Church and return England to Catholicism. That was, for a time in 1688, the rumor. Now that rumor is deeply disputed, but we need to remember that John Churchill was not one to be guided by rumors. He was the one who guides the rumors. But I don't see John Churchill as this Machiavellian puppet master. I see him as an adroit political mover and shaker, that's what he was, but his wife, on the other hand, Sarah, might just be a Machiavellian puppet master. Now all I have to argue that point is circumstantial evidence and suppositions, but let's assume for a minute that James was indeed plotting to disband the Anglican Church. He would very likely not have shared these plans with even one of his favorites, if that favorite, like Churchill, was a Protestant. However, his daughter Anne would very possibly have been privy to this kind of plot. If that were the case, Anne, a Protestant, would certainly have shared it with her friend Sarah, who certainly would have shared it with her husband. Indeed, these three kind of form a little cabal, a Protestant niche within the court of King James, who were certainly working against some of his greater machinations. 
Now, I don't think that James was indeed planning to do anything of the sort. However, the rumor that he was did wind up working out very well for the Churchills, and arguably even better for Anne. And we also shouldn't ignore the possibility of genuine religious devotion. Sir John may have been honestly concerned for the souls of the English people. They would have been, in his eyes at least, doomed to damnation should England lapse back into Catholicism. And even if it wasn't that, if it wasn't salvation on his mind, there were questions of tradition and identity that are always caught up in religion. Now, I don't think that's why Churchill did what he did, at least not the primary motivator, but it is possible. More to the point, and I think this motivated everyone, was the birth of James' son. A male Catholic heir was too much for most English people. They could stomach James. They could put up with him for a few years because following in his footsteps would be his daughter, Mary, who was a Protestant. But now that there was a Catholic on the way, a young, young man, well, that was too much to bear. I think that in a lot of ways, though, what really motivated John Churchill and many of his compatriots was patriotism, honest patriotism. I think that for men like James' chief minister, the Earl of Sunderland, that was why they joined the plot as well, the well-being of their countrymen. All of those members of the king's inner circle who were working against James well, they had their own motivations, but I don't see what they did as a betrayal of the king. They all saw that civil war was on the horizon. It was imminent. It was coming. The Whigs and the Tories were gathering all of their forces for war right now. So these men, who were closest to the king, chose to take proactive action. They decided to guide the revolution, which kept it from getting out of hand. There's a reason it's the bloodless revolution, and it's because of these players. These players who chose to plot with William and Mary. And I should note that there was never a plan to install William as king. They were all pushing for Mary to sit the throne, and intended to see it done with a Dutch army. But her husband, a foreigner, would properly have been a royal consort. He would have been influential, absolutely, but... A consort is divested of any kind of official power or dynastic claim. That was the situation for the first Queen Mary, Mary Tudor. She was married to King Philip II of Spain, and despite all of the rumors of who actually held the reins of power, Philip II was never the King of England. But William, he outplayed everyone. Following this bloodless invasion of Dutch troops and English exiles, William went before the Parliament. There, still coated in the dust of his march, William forced his will upon the English. He demanded to be made king. Not the sole ruler of England, but a co-monarch with his wife. That would mean, though, that he had all of the rights and privileges of his station. And remember that he made this demand with 14,000 Dutch troops at his back, with a fleet sitting in the seas around London. This was not a savvy political move, nothing of the sort that John Churchill was so accomplished. This was the decree of a king. Parliament agreed they had very little choice. 
but William left and began organizing the English armed forces to attack France. As we said earlier, that was the whole point, and he involved Churchill in that. We'll talk about that next time. But the Parliament, who, we should remember, wanted to attack France just as much as William, well, they left him to it. Meanwhile, while the king was occupied, the Parliament drafted legislation that empowered the Parliament. Most notably, it divested the king from his power to call or disband the legislative body. They were now to be a standing, elected body. This was huge. It changed everything in English politics, but William, who was still commander-in-chief, didn't care. Churchill, even though he was involved in all of this legislation, was still dissatisfied. Even though he was invested with new noble title, as we'll get to next time, he was unhappy with what had just transpired. I think it may have had something to do with William's succession thwarting his plans to put maybe his wife's best friend on the throne. But most historians tell us that John Churchill's next moves were merely covering his bases. Throughout the year 1689, John Churchill was in correspondence with members of a new political faction in English politics, a faction that will define our story moving forward. Jacobites. Churchill himself was not a Jacobite, but he was a dangerous political force and a force who reportedly had been in contact with the deposed King James. British historian Thomas Macaulay wrote, quote, William was not prone to fear, but if there was anyone on earth that he feared, it was Marlborough. End quote. Next time we're going to examine this relationship and introduce this new political movement of the Jacobites. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, anyone who has left us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show, everybody who has donated through the website, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family online or in real life, all of you make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as usual, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.
can live on in legend tonight.